all three of us could have the same experience and only one of us could end up with trauma from it. And the trauma is whatever keeps us out of the present moment. It's whatever is, is still in our system that's an unfinished loop that hasn't had a chance to complete itself. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Motherbirth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everybody, welcome to Motherbirth today. Lara and I are here and we are interviewing a special guest from down in California. Kimberly Johnson is a a postpartum women's health specialist and body worker. And she has some really, really unique special specialties, including focusing on sexual intimacy and those kind of trauma pieces that birth can, can have an effect on us. So Kimberly, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll dive into your story and what led you to this kind of work? Sure. Uh, I was a yoga teacher and a body worker for a long time. And then I had a baby. And like a lot of women, I prepared a lot for the birth. And I was pretty informed and pretty healthy and pretty excited about giving birth. And then I had an unexpected birth injury. And it was very, very difficult for me to heal. And when I was trying to find out what the resources were for me, I realized that it's very hard to find resources. And this was 10 years ago. And it's still hard to find resources, but fortunately it's gotten a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I was told I need a full surgical pelvic floor reconstruction and I knew I didn't want surgery. And so I just really dove into what it meant to be a new mom and what was happening to me physically and emotionally and spiritually and sexually. And I've spent the last 10 years in that process, both healing myself and then talking to thousands of women all over the world about their processes of becoming mothers and um, what has evolved for them, both physically, you know, on all of the levels after having a baby. Mm -hmm. From those experiences, I've become a practitioner, uh, but also I just wrote a book that's basically like the book that I wish that I would have had when I became a mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well, we'll come back and talk a little bit about that book at the end once we know a little bit more about your story. But I'm curious, at that point, you've you've had this birth injury, you're reaching out and seeking help, and you're finding that there isn't a lot. Did you ever have a moment where you where you felt like you had to just accept the, the condition or, you know, the state that you were in? Or were you, were you sure or determined that you were going to be able to find something that was going to work and, and move you on that path to healing? I was really determined. I, it's an interesting question because a lot of women come to me basically because they really want to hear from my mouth that I have healed and that Mm -hmm. I really did have a prolapse and that I really don't anymore. Yeah. I'm not sure why I have that lens on life. I, it just, I think because of being a yoga teacher and a body worker and having a dance background, I know that the body is so responsive to what we do with it. And most people assume that it's very static and that, you know, it's hard to change. But in fact, the opposite is true. Like however we stand, whatever we do in movement, however we use our body, that is 
how it, it sculpts itself to those realities, whether those are emotional realities or spiritual realities or physical realities. So I was sure that there were pieces that I didn't have that when I got, I would be able to put the puzzle pieces together so that I would feel whole again. Hmm. I think that's so powerful because I, you know, um, I'm a labor and delivery nurse, but also I am in school to become a midwife. And a lot of the, you know, kind of response to pelvic injury and in the history of pelvic injury with um, labor and delivery or, you know, with birth is acceptance. Like the the coaching is to say, like, this is just something that happens. And um, there might be some resources you can try. But like you said, the first thing, um, obviously, from an obstetric point is surgery. Like there's things you have to try and fail and then you can have surgery. But something that I feel like is so in, embedded in that culture of a, like a Western perspective is um, this is just to be expected. And I obviously completely disagree with that. And I feel like like the energy and the affect that you're describing is how women should feel about their bodies in general, but Mm. specifically about this, um, this type of trauma is that, um, like you said, there, there are pieces out there and there are things that you can take, um, and try and kind of bring back to your own body, um, bring back that power to your body. And I think that, um, you know, I think that as, you know, I, I'm always hopeful and obviously, you know, you, you are a beacon of that hope that there is this new voice out there that says, like, this is not how you have to live your life. You do not have to accept that this is just what happens. Like you have a kid and this is what happens. And that's yeah, the narrative. It's something that's um, going on right now is what I'm seeing is that as there is an increased visibility about pelvic floor health, and I'm not I'm never quite sure how increased it is because of course on my feed and what I'm interested right. in and who I'm talking to, most people are aware of it. So yeah. uh, it's not a good sample size. But as we are more pelvic floor physical therapists than there have ever been, as internal work becomes more accepted as something that women need post-birth, no matter if they deliver vaginally or through C-section, that there's, there is that hope, but the pieces to put together the way that we've constructed modern medicine is very compartmentalized and healing happens when in a truly holistic way, when we're looking at the whole person. So I see an increase in diagnoses, which I think is just an increase of awareness. But what's going along with that is that people are really gelled into the labels and it's causing them to have catastrophic thinking because if you go to Dr. Google or you go on a Facebook group about prolapse it's not an empowering place it's not a place where people are yeah it's a terrifying kind of doomsday a bit of a a bitch fest to be honest with you I've tried to get in some of those forums and offer alternative what well quote unquote alternative suggestions about ways that things can shift in in factors of healing and it's not very well received because we just are we're not accustomed to claiming our own power when it comes to our bodies and yeah. taking our health into our own hands. Yeah. And it's, it's this whole sort of final frontier uncharted territory of, you know, our, 
our vaginas and these, these pieces of ourselves that like, we're really just as women, just, just starting to have conversations about, you know, really, really owning and really understanding. And I don't know very many women, even, even feminists who are, you know, all about, all about, you know, body acceptance and and body love. Like, I don't know very many women who really know and understand the, you know, the workings of, of their vagina and, and, you know, of how all of those, how that, how the health of that affects, you know, the health of all of the rest of our, our body and our organs. And I know that that's true for myself where it's like, it just sort of feels like this, this thing that I don't really understand. I definitely, you know, there's a, there's a, like a visibility factor. There's, there's a, you know, a social factor. There's a language factor. There's all of these things that kind of make it put barriers between us and understanding, understanding those parts of us and understanding the, you know, the condition that they're in. And I feel like it's really easy to use dismissive language. Like there's, there's sort of these two ends of the spectrum. Like there's the Facebook group that's, that's terrifying. And it's like, you have a prolapse and you will, you know, you'll, you'll never walk without peeing again. And you're probably going to end up with colon cancer and all of these like, you know, horrifying suggestions. And then there's this other end where it's like, like Laura said, like, oh, you had a baby. It'll be fine. Like do some Kegels, you know? And there's, there's no, there's nothing healthy or, or redemptive in the middle, you know? Yeah, we could use a lot better somatic sex education. And in my opinion, that is this wave of feminism is the wave of embodiment and the wave of understanding our physiology, understanding our sexual anatomy, understanding pleasure, and including that in our experience as women. Yeah. So can we go back to to this time after your postpartum period, after your your daughter was born, you're searching for answers, you're searching for, you know, for healing. What were the first steps that you took and what were some of the first pieces that started to fall into place for you when you were on that journey? For me, those are two step, separate things. There's the first steps I took that weren't that weren't that helpful. And then there's the pieces mm. that started to fall into place. But the biggest turning point was when I met my mentor. I was two years and two months postpartum or no, I was just a little shy of two years postpartum when I met her. And I was in Thailand teaching a yoga teacher training and she had come to teach anatomy. And one lunchtime, I was just telling her what was going on with me, which is basically that I had fecal incontinence, which meant I was pooping in my pants when I didn't have to go to the bathroom that I was having lower back and SI joint pain that I'd never had before, that my vaginal opening was sore all the time, and that I was I had a diastasis. I had a separation in my abdominal wall that was contributing to the discomfort. And so she said, oh, well, I'm a sexological body worker. And I was like, I've never heard of that before, which is pretty weird for me because I lived in Boulder before I lived in Brazil, and mm. I knew – a lot about a lot of different kind of body work. So she just explained to me that sexological body work was a kind of body work that incorporated genitals. And she happened to be doing a study on scar tissue remediation and postpartum health. And she said, would you be willing to be a part of the study and trade for being photographed and videoed? And I was like, yes. So it turned out that she lived in LA and I'm from San Diego. And so when I came home from Thailand, like three months later, I had three sessions with her. And in those three sessions, my abdominal wall knit back together during a session. I had hemorrhoids also. They went away because the scar tissue in my perineum wasn't 
allowing enough of a place for the blood vessels to live. And so they would, the scar tissue was like pushing out the blood vessels. So my hemorrhoids went away, the incontinence went away basically in three sessions and the pain went away. Mm. And so I didn't feel, I consider my postpartum period to be six and a half years because it was six and a half years for me to feel like I had full access to my life force and that I was able to move my body the way that I wanted to move it. Mm. Up until then, I was still cautious. There was a lot of thinking I needed to do or, or maneuvering or rehab, rehabilitative exercise before I could do certain things. Mm. But at six and a half years, I felt like, okay, like my body is my own. I feel strong. I have the same amount of energy in a certain way that I did before. But that turning point was definitely finding sexological bodywork. And then the next major turning point was somatic experiencing trauma resolution therapy, where I really recognized how the hands-on work together with the nervous system tracking was really what was making the work effective. That when I was working with women, they could have had twice a week physical therapy for something like a prolapse or incontinence. But when I was in the territory, listening to the birth story, helping them reframe, renegotiate, make new meaning out of the birth, whether they were dissociated or disempowered or frustrated or whatever it was, that that's when we were getting the best results with their symptoms. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that somatic method, how that works? It's a bit hard to describe without actually experiencing it, but it's, you know, embodiment. I was just thinking about this because I teach a lot and it's hard to describe because people write to me and they say, as I teach about sex and other topics that are vulnerable and sensitive and people are like, well, what does it mean that the workshop's going to be experiential? Because I think they're imagining that like all of a sudden we're going to take our clothes off and stuff like that, which, you know, could happen, but doesn't happen very often. Um, and I, it's because what I'm teaching and what I offer really comes through my own lived experience. And Somatic experiencing trauma resolution therapy is based on animal behavior. So trauma in this sense is defined as the way that our own system can integrate something. So most people think of trauma as an event, like I haven't been through anything traumatic or that car accident is traumatic or this thing is traumatic, but you, all three of us could have the same experience and only one of us could end up with trauma from it. And the trauma is whatever keeps us out of the present moment. It's whatever is, is still in our system. That's an unfinished loop that hasn't had a chance to complete itself. Hmm. So this would be kind of probably its own whole podcast about just like, what are the foundations of trauma itself? But when we're talking about birth, it applies in many different ways because for, for for instance some two people could have what looked like the same birth from the outside and one of them and it could even look like a good birth to the doctors or to the midwives but from right. the inside that person is not metabolizing it in a way where they're continuing on through the other aspects of motherhood or their sexuality or their self identity in mm-hmm. a way that they feel whole so they, a part of them is still stuck back in that experience that may have been ignited from anything from an intervention. Like sometimes for some people, an epidural is exactly the thing they need. 
for other people, an epidural triggers in some way a a response of helplessness because the body's immobile. Mm -hmm. And so what someone would have said if they were fully present and able to move, they won't say because their body is in a state of immobility and helplessness. Yeah, I've seen that happen a lot. Um, the, a cesarean section. So I believe that a lot of women these days are making choices based on ideology rather than physiology. So you want to be, you know, you want to be associated or identified. It means something about you if you do birth a certain way, but really what we're talking about is physiological cycles. So babies are meant to come through vaginal canals Um, The World Health Organization says, you know, it's normal for 10% of babies to need cesarean sections, but they're also looking worldwide, including countries like Somalia and Eritrea, where pelvic size actually is a problem based on nutrition. Mm -hmm. So even if we were to say that 10% were normal, when the body isn't able to complete a process, that sticks in the body, even if it's not registering in our conscious mind. So for instance, I've worked with many women who are very confused when their sexuality changes after they have a C-section and they may even be having pain vaginally, but they didn't, even when they had a scheduled C-section. So they're like, I didn't even go through labor. Why would my vagina be hurting? And then when I do the work that I do, which is a lot of listening and just allowing the body to have the space and the time that it needs to renegotiate some of these cycles. What the body basically says is, I am confused. I don't know if something is supposed to be coming out or going in. And until that can be complete and those tissues are heard, and sometimes women even start to have uterine contractions Mm -hmm. while I'm working because the body is hasn't been allowed to actually move to completion and if we looked from the infant side of it it would be the same thing the baby didn't have the chance to do the push off extension reflex and so when we work with the babies we place hands on the feet and on the crown of their head and let them get that feeling of pushing up against the top of the head and doing those um, gestures that it would do if it was having a vaginal birth Mm -hmm. So this isn't even a judge. It's no kind of a judgment. It's this is just pure physiology and it's based on animal behavior and looking at how why wild animals don't have trauma, but domestic animals and humans do. Mm. That is a very, very fascinating comparison. And I think I, I knew when I asked the question about describing this method that the answer would be it's complicated. Um, and it does sound complicated, but it also sounds like it's extremely intuitive work. And like you said, it comes from your own lived experiences and certainly training you've done and all of that. But this piece of of just, you know, really, really listening to your intuition and like you said, listening to these women, hearing hearing their stories, hearing what the missing pieces are for them. That sounds like what's really at the heart of it. Yeah, that's true. It is intuitive, but it's also methodical. Mm -hmm. So when you look at how the nervous system works, in some ways, it's very complex, but in some ways, it's simple. When we're under threat, there's really only two choices. There's like a branch, and then one of the branches has a sub branch. So either we have a fight or flight response. But if we were to have that response and we've had an epidural or we've had some kind of surgical intervention or we're already in a freeze response because we feel like we our voice doesn't matter anymore, then we can't do we can't leave the hospital. We could, but most people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, The fighting is a little bit iffy because 
that you're fighting with somebody who's got your life in their hands is how you're feeling. And then in the other branch, so you've got a choice of fight or flight. And when I say choice, I mean a physiological choice, not a rational choice, because this is where we get in trouble. And this is why so many people blame themselves and have the looping self-blame is because it seems like, well, why did I do that? Mm. Well, when you're birthing or even when you're a new mom, you're not in your full rational functioning. You're not in your neocortex in a way that you normally are. And that's good because you, the part of your brain that is larger is for attunement and for connection and for bonding and all the things that we need to be moms, which is different than what we need to be CEOs mm. or to be, um, decision-making creators or whatever else we're doing in our life. So the other branch is the parasympathetic nervous system. And on that side, you have the freeze response. You have the collapse response, which would be like fainting. And then a little sub branch of that is appeasement. And so that's the other thing that women say is like, I don't know why I was acting so nice when really like that was so lame what that doctor said to me or what that nurse said to me. But why was I being so nice? Well, it's physiology. Like your nervous system is going to protect you under threat. And what one of that, one of those protection mechanisms is social, social interaction, social engagement. So especially for women, we pull people closer to us. We befriend them. We appease them. Even in a situation where we looking back on it, maybe we would have liked to activate our sympathetic nervous system and be more assertive or um, have access to another part of ourselves. In the birth scenario, it brings up a lot of our challenges in articulating what we want and need and how we relate to authority. Hmm. That's, there's so much in that. <laughs> I would like you said, yeah. that's a whole, that's a whole episode just to unpack some of that. But I should also, yeah, that is a whole episode. What I should also add is that this work that I do and I learned from my mentor, um, but I, she's not a somatic experiencing practitioner. She uses a different kind of trauma method than I do. Um, but this combination of internal work with nervous system tracking where, and there's other components to it. We work with biochemistry, this is a body of work that we are teaching other people. We've taught it in Europe and we've taught it in Australia. And this next year, 2018 is the first year we're teaching it in the U S. So five years from now, everyone's going to know that this exists and women will be able to have in over the course of their life, when they get their period, when you're going to have your first in, uh, sexual interaction, you're, you'll be able to have somebody that's your like personal sex educator yeah. That's not just talking to you, but actually helping you to understand how your body works, how your sexuality works, uh, and answering the questions for you on how your pelvic health relates to your gynecological health relates to your sexual health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that there are so many women, like I mentioned earlier, who are just kind of so far removed from, from understanding or even, you know, being open to talking about some of this stuff. And, and yet I think that I don't know very many people who wouldn't on some scale say like, yes, my, you know, my, my sex life or my, um, you know, comfort level wasn't impacted by birth. And I think that mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, a really big starting point or, op you know, opening into this is really, really talking with women about, about like, 
just listening to your own body. And, and like you said, like recognizing that just because something is common doesn't mean that it's normal. Like just because you don't want to have sex after having a baby does not mean that that's, it doesn't mean that it's normal just because you have incontinence or, you know, any of these other symptoms or any level of discomfort, like it's common, but it's not normal. And I think that, um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what looking or what reaching out for that support looks like in a world where these these kinds of access to the kinds of um, you know body work that you're talking about is maybe not accessible to you know someone in a small town in Minnesota. But what do they have access to? What can they do in their setting and in their situation to to address what might be going on? That really depends on what exactly is going on. Yeah. Um, I, each of those things is very specific. So not wanting to have sex that there's so much that could be going into that. It could be that there is an injury from the birth that is not resolved. And so that's making someone feel afraid and uncomfortable and not trusting their own anatomy or feeling like something's broken or doesn't look the same anymore. And it's hard to reapproximate. It's hard to get back in touch with that area after something such a huge event has happened there. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then I love vaginal steaming. That's such a gentle practice that anyone can do. And it's a, a way to have a pleasant sensation in the vulva and vagina before feeling something that might be more extreme or more. It's a way to just reclaim that area for yourself before you're sharing it with someone mm -hmm. else. I teach whole workshops on sex after birth and there's three different chapters in my book on this, but it also depends on how we define sex. So if, if we've only ever had fast penis and vagina penetration sex, that's really not appealing to very many women postpartum. Mm -hmm. And I consider the postpartum time to be this amazing opportunity to feminize sex, which just means putting female pleasure at the center. But that can be really startling and scary for someone who's never tried that, who's never talked about their own pleasure, who's never really looked into what they like or what feels good. And so it, it becomes this time where all of these scripts start to get activated and people just fall into the scripts like I have low libido or I'm touched out. And rather than looking at sex, that's something that is like a battery pack that can recharge you and thinking about, okay, what kind of sex do I want? And can I ask for that? And am I falling into this pattern of toleration or fear? Like, oh no, if I don't do it, then my partner's something, you know, all my clients kind of say the same thing, that their partners are so patient, but they don't know how long they're going to be patient for, but they just don't know what to do. And they, they can't imagine a way back yeah. in. And it's like the way back in is through radical honesty, through non-shaming and just saying, you know, if it's true, like I really want to connect with you and I feel radically different and how are we going to do sex now? Yeah. I've, I've had this conversation, you know, I think when you do have pieces of women's health in your background, people then start gravitating to you. And, um, one of the things that I feel like I've heard from so many people. It's almost, you know, that stereotypical vulnerability 
you know, chasm where it's like you're on one side and your partner's on the other. And like you said, so many people, the only bridge they build is tolerance. So they almost come up with this idea in their minds of like, well, if I can have sex with them this many times, then they will leave me alone. And, and those kind of dialogues and that kind of mantra is obviously that there's no health in that for a sexual relationship, but it's also very, you know, the, the antithesis of intimacy, which is really what, mm. you know, you both are hopefully desiring. And I think for a lot of people, you know, I remember telling a friend, like, she was like, I just don't know what to do. I feel like if I actually have to talk about it, because, you know, if I, if I actually have to be vulnerable, I'm just going to be hysterical. And I was like, okay, well then, like, your prescription is hysteric vulnerability. <laughs> like, I need you to go home and be hysterically vulnerable with this person who loves you unconditionally. Like, same thing, like you're saying, like, mm. all she would say is like, my partner has been so patient. He's been so kind. He's been so understanding. And it's like, and you're terrified to tell him how you feel. And yet I know this of this other person as well. And so it's just kind of like, how do you, how do you, like you said, it's just, it's a, it's a step you have to take in that direction. And I loved what you said about kind of reclaiming sex and making it more, you know, female pleasure centric. I think those are conversations that people just take off the table once they have, like you said, they kind of just become these self-taught things where it's like, well, now I had kids. So sex isn't enjoyable anymore. And you're like, whoa, 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 like people have been having sex for millions of years after having kids. Like it's, you know, that, that doesn't have to be your story. And I love that. Cause I think, like you said, it's like, they almost, instead of, I think you said either toleration or fear. And it's like, that is not intimacy. Neither of those things are intimate mm -hmm. at all. Well, they're probably everybody listening to this has done those things or been in that position. I mean, I have in my life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a part of intimacy because intimacy is all of it. Yeah. But it's, I think it's really helpful for, I mean, there's just sex, sexual education in our country is just, or maybe just worldwide. I mean, we just, never before has in history, really, I maybe 5,000 years ago in the goddess temples, but for the last 5,000 years, women's pleasure really hasn't been a part of the whole conversation. So this is such a new conversation. And I just, I just want women instead of falling into those traps, because the way that we talk about sex in our culture is basically like how many times a week yes. are you doing it? And how many orgasms right. do you have? Not like, is it interesting to you? Is it creative? Are you feeling loved? Are you feeling excited? What's your growing edge? What would you like to work with? And if we can elaborate the conversation a little bit, there's so much pressure, you know, it's like, there's so much pressure on orgasm right now. Doctors are saying you should do it. It's good for your health. And then the sex educators are like, you need to be like this multi-orgasmic sex goddess. And then after birth, women are like, you know, people come to me and I, I don't necessarily know how far postpartum they are. And every postpartum mom thinks they should be farther along in their recovery than there are, whether that's with sex or with exercise or with work or whatever. It's like we put so much pressure on ourselves. And a lot of times, you know, the Gottman research says that what men want in the first year postpartum is not necessarily sex. It's to know that their wife still sees them, to know that their partner still sees them and still finds them attract attractive. So, we have this cultural script that men want sex all the time and women are the gatekeepers and we just like fight them off. 
but all three of us know plenty of people where that's, that wasn't the script in their marriage or partnership before they had kids. So, uh, but we, we just fall into these narrow ideas. And so I guess the message here is that, as you were mentioning, you can make it what you want to make it. And a way to do that is, to take off these expectations because, you know, hopefully you're going to be with your partner for a while. So it's not, there's not like a huge rush, but people feel that urgency, like, oh no, it's going to fall apart. Or there's, there's just, there's so much like talk about sympathetic nervous system arousal. It's like, there's just so much pressure and there's a lot of reasons why sex is difficult postpartum. One of them is that birth practices are really not, woman-centered, human-centered right now. And so many women are very disappointed after they have births because they plan for one thing and something else happens. And they have a feeling that that wasn't the physiological best direction. They have a feeling that they got duped. And, you know, I, I'm a birth doula sometimes and I go to the childbirth education classes and everyone I've been to, birthing from within, Bradley method, hypnobirthing, they all say no force directed pushing. And 19 out of the last 20 births I've been to have all been force directed pushing. So that creates a cognitive disconnect already because the woman's in that moment going, well, I was taught in class that this isn't good for me, that this increases perineal tearing, that I shouldn't be in this position, but here I am. And here's everyone around me like yelling, you know, push and counting. So birth practices contribute to birth, to birth trauma contribute to how we want to share that area of ourselves again. Um, Identity for some people marrying the mother identity with the sexual identity is really challenging. For some people, it's relationship dynamics. I have a lot of clients where their gender roles become so distinct after they have a baby when they were really trying to be more egalitarian beforehand. Mm -hmm. And they were really like, they had an idea that it could be 50-50 and then they give birth and they're like, holy shit, it's so not 50-50. And a lot, there's a lot of resentment about how the physiology doesn't match up again with the ideology. Yeah, that, that is, that's a can of worms right there for sure. And I think, (laughs) I think that like, there's, there's so many different pieces to this and I, and I love how you've touched on just the relationship dynamics too, because I think that something that is, feels really evident to me, both in my personal experience and even as we're talking is just that there are so many aspects of this that are, are just kind of latent in our relationships, like the piece about, you know, we're not really focused on, on pleasure for ourselves. You know, sex is often, I mean, how many times have, how many times have you said, let's just have a quickie and the quickie was for the woman? (laughs) Like, let's, let's just be honest, like, let's have a quickie is, and I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with quickies. I, I love a quickie, but it's like, you know, that, that kind of means something. And I think that birth trauma and even just birth in general and all of the things that happen are just sort of an amplification of a lot of those dynamics that are already at play. And so you have these, you know, you have couples that have never really talked about sex in in a in an actually vulnerable way 
And now they're in this position where there's something that is kind of new on the table that makes it feel even even less like we can go there. And and really, it, it, it pushes people apart. But it's actually, from what you're describing, it's actually an invitation into into figuring something out that is that can lead to to so much more pleasure, to so much more intimacy, to so much more, you know, health for as an individual and then also in this relationship long term. It just feels like there's a lot of a lot of potential. I agree. I think it's a huge window of potential in so many ways. It's it's a part of a rite of passage that's not mm-hmm. comfortable. Uh, and our our society does not deal well with discomfort. We control everything. And, you know, I lived in Brazil for eight years where you just can't control everything. So you get used to being uncomfortable. You get used to being in hot banks in a line with 50 people that are breathing down your neck and yeah. waiting. You know, we don't do that here. And so the fact that it's profoundly dis- uncomfortable, like, you know, everyone wants in the new age world and the, you know, female empowerment leadership brands is like all about transformation, but real growth and transformation has challenges. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to shift your identity. It's not easy to have your body rearranged and refabricated. And there's real challenges that come with that. But that is, that's also maturation and another value that our society doesn't really dig you know it's about being young and everything that has to do with youth whereas like this is real maturity this is real deep connection to self to other to interconnection to the forming of a family and what I also like to remind women about because you know I'm sure your listeners I think pretty much most people listening to birth podcasts are probably you know they're interested in birth to begin with so Uh, they're listening from a certain perspective of really wanting to mine the birth experience as a, as a very rich experience. Everybody has the idea. I kind of lost my train of thought there to be honest, but um, the transformation that's available. Oh, I remind what I'm saying was saying was that I try to remind women that are, that maybe have more of a slant towards attachment parenting and that are, are, you know, really, wanting that type of bond and connection with the baby that ultimately it is a hierarchy. So yes, there's a mother baby unit after you have a child. That's what the fourth trimester is that there, the baby can't really survive without its mother. The physiology is completely interdependent, but ultimately it is a hierarchy and the child is underneath the couple. The couple is above the child and it's a problem when it's all equal. That's not how it works in the animal kingdom. It's not, it's not what children need. Children don't need to be treated as equals. They need to understand that there is a hierarchy mm. in, at play. And so prioritizing relationship, pri- prioritizing sexual connection. And when I say sexual connection, I mean really bonding, because for some people that doesn't have to be penetration. Sex is not a basic human need. We can survive without it. We just can't survive without touch and we can't survive without sexual mm. expression. Those seem like really important distinctions. I think so because I think again it takes this this pressure that, you know, 
this idea that we're in charge of someone else's orgasm, you know, like, oh, my poor husband, why your poor husband or your poor partner? It's like, I, I only feel sorry for them if you're avoiding them and you're actively withholding yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're all responsible for our own, own orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, you know, I really agree with you in the sense of this is a conversation that in the most ideal circumstance starts very early and is kind of part of how you grow up in your own sexual awareness and your own sexual vocabulary and your own sexual kind of, um, I guess, in your own sexual skin is what I really think of just because I feel like sometimes people, the way they communicate about sex is very outside of self. Um, And I feel like it's really difficult to engage people who have that, that, you know, maybe that mindset, that background about sexual encounters in general but then when you add like you know as we're specifically talking about that fourth trimester or even you know specifically postpartum trauma to that they like you said it kind of becomes these different categories where it's like oh well, I feel really bad for my husband so we're doing this or it hurts really bad but you know I'm just you know like we're, I don't know I feel like how then you know if you don't have that background and you don't have that language um do you feel like the the work starts there does it start with those kind of conversations and realizations of self? Yeah, I think stating where you are. So many people are afraid to state where they are because they're afraid of how the other person's going to feel. But, you know, we're all very perceptive creatures. And when we're just laying, you know, people talk about, tell me that they just lay there until their partner gets it over with or use it or finishes or whatever. Their partner knows that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like People know when you're into it or you're not into it. And ultimately, that's not what they want. So as women, we really have to take responsibility for our own desires and be brave and state what we want and what we don't want. But really, it's more about stating what we do want because most women are pretty good at saying, I don't like that. Don't touch me like this. No, I don't want, I don't want it like that. And I think simple statements, like I do want intimacy with you. I just don't want it the way you're offering it to me, or I want it this way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is huge. And that, that applies to any, any aspect of communicating in a relationship where so, you know, we're so good at shutting, shutting things down and saying like, no, not like that. But it's, it's, it's so helpful, not just for, not just for men, but for any, any person in a relationship to have that information, like it's information. Someone is telling you like, here is what you can actually do that will work. You know, whether we're talking about sex or the dishes or, you know, like who's, who's taking care of the baby in the night when they're crying, like it's, it goes such a long way. Well, and that's a really, I'm glad you brought that up because I I did a whole podcast just on how men can get the sex that they want. But so there's lots of ways to define postpartum, but in the immediate six weeks postpartum, all over the world, cultures have names for it. In China, it's called the golden month. In India, it's called the sacred window. And there's very specific physiological needs that women have during that time. And I would like to shout from the rooftops to every partner, 
if you invest in a postpartum doula or you make sure that your wife or you're the mother of your child has what she needs to truly be cared for during that time, all of these other discussions will change radically, including postpartum depression. And because frankly, a lot of people are ending up with the birth injuries also because they don't have that care and they're overdoing in the immediate postpartum. And so if, if our, as a culture, we can understand that we have, there's a gross oversight in how we support women after they have babies. And instead of buying baby gifts at mother blessings, we give women information and services so that they can actually be taken care of, fed the right foods, given the right body work, have enough companionship during that time then there's not so much pressure on the partner because what I see is that women are very anxious for good reason because, you know, you go home with your newborn, you're told like, good luck until your six week visit. And then you're lonely because you're sitting alone in the house or you've got a toddler and an infant and you're having occasional visitors, but you're, you know, maybe your partner got 12 days off of work, maybe, you know, and we need daily companionship. It's not normal to be alone all day long with an infant. A mother need the same things the infant needs. The infant needs skin to skin contact, needs eye contact, needs very consistent food. A woman needs those same yeah. things. And so if a woman is not well taken and if she does have birth trauma, having spiritual and emotional companionship at that time, there will be a natural renegotiation of that. She may still need extra support Mm. in addition to that, but she won't fall into the pit. So then when a woman's already feeling anxious, she starts directing all that anxiety towards her partner because it's like a safe place to put all of that anxiety. But if there's another person or people around, a team of people of support. And by the way, I don't mean a team of people that a woman's like driving around to, like going to the acupuncture's office and then the cranial appointment. I mean, people that are coming to your house, that's like a centralized place that you're not leaving for a while. Then a lot of this renegotiation becomes much smoother and much less charged because all these conversations aren't being had already in an atmosphere of depletion. really high charge and anxiety yeah, and depletion. And I think you, you mentioned the overexertion, which is so huge. And women with C-sections are, you know, ignoring instructions. And of course they have to drive their baby to an appointment and then they have to carry that baby. Like no one's there to do it for them. So they're going to do it. And it's, it's, there's just no surprise that, that, that situation leads to these other things that we're talking about. And I love what you said about this extended community. And, you know, instead of, instead of baby gifts, you know, or, or in addition to baby gifts or, you know, whatever that looks like, you know, offering and providing support to women in that postpartum period is so huge. And, and if we look at any traditional culture on this planet, you're, you're absolutely right. There's no such thing as a woman that's alone with an infant all day long. Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, our poor moms and grandmothers had to do it all alone. You know, our grandmothers got knocked out and then had babies and were given formula, given medicine to dry up their milk and taught that formula was better. And then our moms 
also didn't have support. Plus their moms hadn't breastfed, so couldn't help them learn how to breastfeed because they didn't have that embodied wisdom to offer. And we live in this puritanical individualistic culture where as women, we've adopted this mentality that we can do anything men can do and we can do it better and we should be able to do it all. And this is just one circumstance where we really have to practice asking for help and receiving help. And it's an ongoing thing. It's like, there's just, I've never heard someone say to me, they had too much postpartum support. No one's ever said like, oh, it was too much. I had actually one person say to me, it was in LA and they had quite a bit of money. And so they hired a lot of people. Like they hired not just a postpartum doula, but like a postpartum doula. And then they had a massage therapist also coming in a cook. And she said it was like a few too many people around. But in general, people are, people look back and it's so funny. I, I recorded a book trailer for, um, for my book. And there was a mom that was nine months pregnant. Like she's like 38 weeks. And then there was a mom with her infant and they were sitting outside on a bench talking and we were talking about postpartum support. And the mom who had the infant was just like going, oh my God, that would be the best thing ever. Like I should have done that. And you could see the look on the face of the woman who hadn't had her baby yet was kind of just like, why is that such a big deal? And I'm not going to need all that kind Mm. of thing. And it's so hard to convince pregnant women about the impact of the postpartum time and to convince them to be able to see past the birth birth experience that the birth experience isn't going to last longer than 72 hours, but the postpartum period is going to last much longer time and has a potential to have a, a much bigger impact on how the family system goes, how the couple dynamic goes, how their own recovery Mental goes. Health. Yeah. All of these things. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, it's there's I I love that this conversation is is about this. Like we're not just talking about, you know, sex and how to get back to having regular sex with your partner cuz I think it's, you know, like you said that's really not what this is about and I love that there's this other underlying piece that we're talking about that that that's that supports and and kind of leads to that. And so I'm curious to ask in the work that you do, again, kind of, we'll just kind of focus on, on this piece of it, the, you know, the, the sex and intimacy part of it in the work that you do for, you know, for someone who is, whether they're six weeks postpartum or six months postpartum and really, really feeling like they they are kind of in this place where they aren't being honest with their partner, um, they haven't been able to kind of revive that that connection. Um, what would you say your your biggest advice to them would be in this space? Well, I think just having the courage to to bring up the elephant in the room and to not make assumptions about what you think the other person wants. Because I hear a lot of that in my office about what so-and-so wants. And then I said, but did you ask that person? Are you sure that's actually what they want? And the answer is usually no. That there, a lot of people have never talked about sex outside of when they're having it. And 
so just bringing it up because shame is such a huge part of our relationship to sex that when we just state and and say, you know, I really want to talk about this. I'm, I'm feeling afraid about this, or I'm feeling like on the mental level, I want to be with you, but on the physical level, I feel insecure or, you know, whatever it is, it's like being able to talk about that and really be honest about it and also make it a we thing because it's not one person's problem or the other person's problem. It's, it's a part of connection that both people are in. So it's like, if you do want to be intimate, then it's like, you know, I really love you and I really want to be with you and I want to be intimate. I just don't know how to do it right now. What are your ideas? You know, what do you think? The thing is, is before you have a baby, there's a lot of workarounds. You know, female arousal takes 35 to 45 minutes. Sometimes when you haven't, when you don't have children in the mix, you're kind of building up your arousal throughout the day when you're imagining certain things or images come across your screen or you're flirtatious or in other ways. But once you have children, usually your mind is really occupied. So to shift gears into that other zone takes a longer time. And so if what you were used to doing before was one certain way, that way might not be working. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like I liked how you said it, I call it giving the other person your code. I think we have this, what I consider to be kind of an immature idea that people should have to figure out how we work Mm -hmm. and that that's part of it rather than saying to someone, you know, I love it when you blah, blah, blah. And I would love it if you blah, blah, blah. And telling them how you work, you know, what it is. And a lot of people say, yeah, but then if I ask say I ask for a head rub, then he's going to think it has to go somewhere. And I think that's something also to bring up. Like I would like to have time frames so that I don't want to feel obligated if we do start touching or we do start to be intimate that it has to go somewhere. Because I think that's also an, an unconscious program, like the whole blue balls thing, like, oh, but it will feel terrible for him or that's not allowed or I shouldn't be able to change directions. Once things get get set in motion, then it has to have this inevitable conclusion. But that's also a very masculine oriented view of what interaction is like there can be play that goes to a point and then ends and that's okay. Nobody's responsible for finishing anything. There is no finishing. Like I tell all my clients, like if there's two words I never want to hear again, it's foreplay and finishing. It all makes it sound like it's leading up to some big event that's the only important thing. Yeah. And then it's disappointing. Or it just, it actually drains one of energy rather than offers more energy. Hmm. Yeah, it's really just just hearing this is is actually so powerful for me and I feel like that's just a trap I've been in so many times and and the way you described that sense of like wanting the other person to figure you out it's you're totally right and I've never really thought about it that way but it's kind of just this like romantic bullshit from our 
from our society and even from Hollywood, you watch a movie and, you know, the best romantic movies are the ones where like, they never have to say anything. And, you know, the, the, the perfect French lover is just, he gets it all. And he's, you know, he understands exactly what you want physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's, it's just kind of, it's kind of a lie, you know? It's definitely, you know, what movies show is only the romantic lead up to, to being together. They don't generally show what it's like once you're already together. Mm -hmm. But even within that dynamic, I don't feel that people really get what they want. Like even when you're dating, people always say to me, well, you're so lucky you can have these conversations because you can trust people. And I'm like, no, I have these conversations to create the trust. The conversation itself is what creates the trust. And that has to do with my own level of comfort and courage, really, that I know that I'm just talking about myself. I'm not blaming the other person. I'm not shaming them for how they are or what they do. I'm just saying what I need and how I work and what I like. And then the other person can say, you know, this is really the challenge of this, it's a spiritual practice of not automating your partner, of not assuming you know how they're going to react, what they're going to say, and what they like. That this person who's in front of you is a mysterious, awe-striking being, and that they are full of mystery too. And sometimes we have to uncover our own vulnerability to invite that in the other person. Yeah, I really like that too, and I like that perspective, you know, as we talk about um, the postpartum to that transition in that period because it's a big transition for the partner as well and so you know we would be remiss if we both you know if we said one or the other you know obviously our perspective and our audience is mostly female and mostly like you said women who are in this experience but the reality is you know both people are going through you know we've spoken with another guest who talks you know about the huge relationship transitions that she has studied um just even psychologically so it's like of course then you know both both people are going through transitions that have that might have completely different outcomes like you said even if even if they feel like they're on the same page it's really this vulnerability this intimacy this ask and this telling that really can kind of uncover the true the, the true status of this part of their relationship Definitely. And I also just think it's always good to mention that we really, most women haven't really tried to understand. And, and this is a very heteronormative conversation that we're having, but if for heterosexual partnership, most women really haven't put a lot of energy into trying to understand how men works. We just sort of think of men as like hairy, misbehaving women. And we think of ourselves as superior men. <laughs> and we haven't really taken a lot of time to listen. And, you know, some basic things are if you ask a man a question, don't keep talking. Ask the question and wait longer than you would for a girlfriend. Like they process information differently on the whole. And if you really want to hear what they have to say and you're really interested, then you need to wait. And then again, you need to be specific about what you're asking for. You know, give them a way to be successful. And when they're successful, they will continue doing those things that you have, have told them and appreciated. 
And this isn't, you know, people kind of scoff at it and they're like, this is like behaviorism. No, this is because there actually are biological realities and it's not across the board and it's, but there is, there are some essential qualities about feminine qualities in most women, masculine qualities in most men. And it's kind of when you start to learn about it and you start to not expect everyone to process the world the way that you do, it's a lot more satisfying because you can actually have what you want rather than making it into this big, like you said, kind of fairy tale guessing game because the doing the asking for it and the doing it of it are two different things. Like if I tell you like my fantasy is that I want you to take me to hotel this is such as like such a stereotypical fantasy, but it's actually one that I do did have and have done. And like, I want you to buy me lingerie and I want you to leave it on the bed and I want you to go in the bathroom so I can put it on. Like I can give that a step by step. Well, that's completely different than actually doing it. And the turn on doesn't go down anymore when I'm actually doing it. In fact, it's more because it's like, wow, this person totally listened and is totally in to playing with me and playing in a way that's interesting for me. Mm. But what does it mean? What does it mean as a woman to say what you want to, to, to reveal your pleasure, to allow somebody to know what you love? It's edgy because some, somehow it feels like you're giving some power away that someone could use against Mm. you. Maybe. Yeah. I think that could be a factor. For some people, I love what you're saying about, about listening and just seeing where the other person is coming from. And it doesn't even have to be about, you know, masculine traits or feminine traits. It's just about that. This is a different person than you. They are a different human being. They are not you, you know, there's so, they are going to be different than you in so many ways. Kimberly, can you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about if someone is kind of moving past this stage and knows or feels that they, that they need some more professional help and kind of identifying and working perhaps with birth trauma or these other, you know, sexual recovery pieces, how would they go about finding you or someone like you that does sexological body work? Well, they can find me on my website, which is magamama.com, M-A-G-A-M-A-M-A.com. We're training practitioners, and that website is scartissueremediation.com. You guys live in, like, the pussy capital of the world where Tammy Lynn Kent is, so she does a lot of great work, and she's trained lots of amazing practitioners, so that's wildfeminine.com. There's a whole bunch of – well, I don't know about a whole Uh, bunch, but I know a few different practitioners around the Portland area that are trained by Tammy. Yeah. Totally. And there are a whole bunch. There's quite a few. And then and on wildfeminine.com, she also has practitioners all over the country that do the work. And somatic experiencing specifically is not the most, I don't know anybody else. I'm sure there are, there must be a couple because there's thousands of somatic experiencing practitioners. Now that website is traumahealing.org. So you can find a practitioner for that. But I feel really strongly. And also Pam England's birth story medicine is awesome for processing birth trauma and really affordable. There's a lot of people certified in it. And um, Pam's partner, business partner, Virginia, give sessions that are amazing. And I'm trained in bursary medicine also, but I really do feel that if, especially if someone's had tearing repairs, 
um, birth injuries, I feel pretty strongly that people get the holistic care of the hands-on work together with somebody that can do the tracking, which Tammy totally can do and that we do. Well, we'll share links to all of those different resources so that people can find them, whether, you know, they live in one of these areas where it's like, you know, one in 10 people offer this, (laughs) offer this service or whether it's somewhere, you know, I know, I know people like you, people travel to see you because you don't exist everywhere. And so, and I know that that's also partly because you are so gifted in what you do, but you know, it's also possible to, you know, to travel to, to get this kind of care. So, um, that's right. And I, I think that's important to emphasize because it's really not about someone traveling to me necessarily, but it's about that is a step in your own healing process. I wrote a whole article about this, about like the significance of a pilgrimage and what it means to make a pilgrimage and place your health as that, especially your sexual health as something that you're willing to claim that's that important to you to turn your attention towards and to invest in it. So I have had people come from all over the world, from Spain, from Montana. You know, so I do a process called a birth rehearsal. So sometimes people travel when they're pregnant mm-hmm. to have that experience, mostly just be, when they listen to something that I've said and they're like, that makes sense. Like that's the first thing that I've heard that really makes sense. I need to do that process. I've, I had a, you know, medicalized home birth transfer to hospital, first birth. I'm sure I have tons of scar tissue and I don't want to have another baby before I work this out kind of thing. So there's definitely, you know, people around the world and there's going to be more because we're going to be training more and more people. And like I said, my vision is that in five years, this work is at least there's going to be somebody in most states, you know, in this first training, we, we really tried our best to get somebody from each region, but, um, yeah, there's, it's, it's really a matter of making it a priority and, and moving in the direction of knowing that you need help and that you're going to get it however you need to. So as we're wrapping up, Kimberly, can you tell us a little bit about your book that's coming out in December? Yes. My book is called The Fourth Trimester, a postpartum guide to healing your body balancing your emotions and restoring your vitality. It covers a lot that we've talked about today, but it covers it much more in depth. So doing a bit of a cultural survey of all of these cultures that we've talked about and what they have in common. So I identify five universal postpartum needs that, although it may look different from culture to culture that are through lines around the world. And then The first whole section of the book is how you can put together a postpartum plan. So just like women have birth plans, like how do you put together a postpartum plan? What are the questions you can ask yourself? What are the questions like I there's a whole chapter on communication with your partner so that you can work on that communication beforehand so that after you have the baby, you already have some strategies and language in place, both sexually and otherwise for different roles and um how you're going to care for one another and Mm -hmm. be cared for. And then there's a section specifically on Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. There's a section which I'm really excited about because I've never seen anywhere in the non-technical place just talking about what are the medical realities. You know, if you're told you have a prolapse, what does that mean? 
Um, how do you work with it? What are the things that contribute to that? How can you work to understand your own situation and then not necessarily self-diagnose, but be able to understand, oh, you know what? I think my situation is mostly because of biomechanical problems, or I think it's mostly from trauma, or I think it's mostly because of the scar tissue. And to start to understand what are the components that go into pelvic health and just overall health postpartum. And then there, the last section is on identity. So discovering the mother that we are, looking at our mother lineage, what we want to carry forward, what we'd rather leave behind, and just all of the different shifts. And the book has a lot of wonderful personal stories, but also a lot of wonderful um, stories of clients and um, women that I've worked with around the world. I love it. Well, that book is, by the time this airs, that book will actually be, um, will be out. So we will make sure to share a link to that in the show notes as well. And we're really excited to share all of these different resources that Kimberly's talking about, because I think they're just going to be so life-changing for women. And thank you so much for opening up and, and sharing about your own journey and your work and just these, these really incredible perspectives for women who are who are in this stage of their lives and that just have so much potential and so much opportunity to, to grow in their, in their vitality. So thank you, Kimberly. Thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for listening to mother birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook where we have all kinds of behind the scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Lara Melissa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. <laughs>